What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. As you might guess, articles about coronavirus dominate this week's stories. We look at it from the ethical angle, designing a crisis management plan, ethical leadership, some uh, good movies to watch if you're working from home, and what's the board of directors role in the coronavirus crisis. Charles Middleton says we should stop blackballing whistleblowers. We revisit inherent conflicts of interest. Mike Volkoff takes us on a deep dive into antitrust compliance programs. And is management retrenchment always bad and corporate social responsibility always good? Jay ends with some reflections of the times of Tom Brady and the New England Patriots as he has now left the team. I know you will enjoy this episode. Jay and I had a lot of fun putting it together. We put a lot of information in here that we think will help you uh, as you navigate uh, these unknown waters of the coronavirus crisis. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself for This Week in FCPA, episode 197 for the week ending March 20, 2020, the Compliance Doesn't Sleep edition. While coronavirus and COVID-19, for those in the know, dominated the news this past week, compliance doesn't sleep and neither did we. Uh, self-distancing ourselves from all other humans, or in Jay's case, all other humans except his immediate family. We're back to consider some of the top compliance articles and stories which caught our eye this week. Jay, how is life in self-distancing Southern California? Uh, Life here goes on, but it seems like it's been a month. And I think uh, when our sea change happened, it was only about a week ago. Uh, the girls are doing a lot of TikTok. Uh, Michaela has me rewatching a series with her on the Disney Channel called Gravity Falls. So I'm catching up on some of the things I've uh, missed before. And we're uh, spending a lot of quality family time. So we are doing what we can do to get through this. How are the dogs handling it in Houston? The dogs are digging it, although they are very intuitive. They know something is up. And so they seem a little off kilter, but uh, having mom and dad home is a big deal. Um, Halliburton last yesterday announced 60-day furloughs for all employees starting Monday. So uh, the energy business is taking it on the chin. All right. So we've got a lot of uh, articles to look at this week from folks who are looking at different um, perspectives and angles on the coronavirus what do our friends at Compliance Week have to say? Well, Jay, uh, Dave Lee Fort, editor of Compliance Week, and two of his top writers, Aaron Nicodemus and uh, Jacqueline Jagger, all wrote articles. Uh, they have dropped their firewall for all articles around coronavirus, so kudos to Compliance Week for doing that. I think a lot of uh, publications have, but uh, 
Compliance Week is our publication. So once again, kudos to Dave LaFort and Compliance Week for doing this. Uh, Dave starts out his piece on why ethical leadership is even more important than ever during the coronavirus. Uh, I thought it was a great piece, um, as you would expect from an EIC, EIC, really a higher level view and great for Dave to uh, to point that out to management and leaders. Um, Aaron Nicodemus takes a look at how ethics actually benefits companies uh, for uh, the coronavirus situation. He quoted our good friend Allison Taylor, who says that social media is allowing people to track and for businesses' reputations, both upside and downside, of how they are um, uh, handling the coronavirus situation around such things as sick leave. Uh, I follow Twitter fairly closely now, and, I mean, Amazon is just getting skewered uh, around their uh, lack of, of paid sick leave policy and their request for those who are not sick to donate time to those who are. You think a company that paid no taxes would have a little bit better ethics values than that, but uh, apparently not right now. And then Jacqueline Jager actually with an eight-step program for designing a crisis management plan. Uh, it's a symbol of crisis management team. Hopefully you've already done that. Factor in regional considerations, have an internal and an external communication plan. Don't underestimate the importance of media training. That's something Jonathan Marks talks about quite a bit. Review and revise your business continuity plan. Business continuity has become a, really a buzzword. Matt Kelly was talking about it several months ago, but now a lot of other people are talking about it. Another uh, concept from Jonathan Marks, exercise scenario planning drills. Uh, I would say living in Houston uh, around hurricanes, we have a fair amount of that and real experience as well. Don't forget about the recovery stage. And then finally, keep calm and carry on. So uh, three great articles. The the, uh, firewall is down for coronavirus articles on Compliance Week. So check them all out. Jay, uh, Dick Kasten took a little bit different uh, approach. What did he uh, have to say? Uh, Dick is uh, wondering, those folks who are kind of chilling at home like we are, I don't know how much chilling we're doing, but we're definitely at home, and he's come up with seven recommendations of movies that uh, deal with ethics and compliance and have previously been reviewed on the FCPA blog. So those seven in no particular order, Uh, The Big Short from 2015, Margin Call from 2011, the Big Easy, which is a great movie. I hope it still hold, holds up with Dennis Quaid. Love that one. Uh, a Most Violent Year from 2014. American Hustle with uh, Christian Bale and an all-star cast from 2013. Leonardo DiCaprio's tour de force role on The Wolf of Wall Street. And the last one, starring my good friend George Clooney, uh, Seriana from 2005. Uh, he did come in with some honorable mentions, uh, Godfather Part 2 from 74, L.A. Confidential from 1997, Al Pacino's Tour de Force in Serpico from 1973, and from 1993, The Firm. Who knew that a mob uh, operation could be fronted by a southern law firm where uh, Tom Cruise goes in and solves the murder and uh, – Flexes his muscles a little bit too. So, uh, Tom, any any uh, films you'd like to add to uh, Richard's growing list? No, but I was intrigued. Could you get your good friend George Clooney to come on the podcast to talk about uh, having his fingernails torn out in Syriana? 
Well, I, I'll have to see if I can contact him through social media. I used to have the cell phone number, but that was back in uh, 1998, 2000. So uh, I'm not sure if I can get through, but uh, both you and Mrs. Compliance would be very excited if I could make that happen. <laughs> very excited. So, Jay, um, we had an interesting article from Jeff Kaplan, uh, who runs the uh, Compliance uh, Conflicts of Interest blog, rather. And uh, Jeff reminded us about inherent conflicts of interest. And um, initially, he noted that President Trump has had been accused of over 3,000 conflicts of interest, but we'll leave those for another day. Um, he says that compliance professionals really need to uh, to take a look at and not and recognize they may have a blind spot around an inherent conflict of interest. Um, they in uh, as a conflict of interest, certainly that's something we take a look at and, and measure, but conflicts of in, inherent conflicts of interest should be a part of your risk assessment. Uh, senior uh, managers, directors, uh, those who are part of a compliance and ethics oversight should make sure that nothing in their company uh, is contemplate their company's doing falls into a inherent conflict of interest. Enforcement personnel need to uh, steer clear of inherent conflicts of interest. Uh, business individual business persons in their career decisions also. And I thought it was a good reminder that um, an inherent conflict of interest is one that just puts you uh, in a position of appearance of conflict of interest, which can be more powerful than the actual conflict of interest. So a uh, great reminder from uh, Jeff Kaplan. So uh, next up, uh, another article from the FCPA blog. A couple of attorneys at Hughes, Hubbard, and Reeves, Reed, who are in the white-collar space, Kevin Abacoff and Mike Hunicky, and uh, they say there is no COVID-19 defense to corruption. Uh, he, the uh, attorneys say that we should anticipate with an optimism, that, but also some serious preparation, that there will be a post-quarantine return to business, and we need to appreciate that a retor- return to normal business will actually mean in practice a period of frenetic efforts to make up for lost time and revenue. In this vein, they offer six thoughts on how an effective mechanism for compliance professionals to stay in front of their internal clients, stay on top of emerging compliance issues, and effectively manage anti-corruption compliance in these difficult times. Number one, stay visible. Your internal stakeholders might have a mistaken impression that with compliance departments working remotely, that compliance is no longer active. Number two, chase for completeness. Take the time, the time that you really have and rarely have in the normal course of work to ensure that due diligence files are complete, forms are signed, and all necessary information has been provided to the compliance team. Keep reading. The results of open source research, third-party due diligence reports, and applications or requests for compliance advice can be overwhelming. Take the time while in quarantine or otherwise working remotely to get caught up on your necessary reading. Number four, hold the line. Accommodating remote working does not mean that requests to water down or reduce requirements of the compliance program should be granted. Number five, insist on interviews. Remote is better than none. Do not forego interviews. And number six, ensure financial controls are functioning. Take the time to communicate with your compliance colleagues in finance to ensure that financial controls, payment blocks, four eyes required, etc., are still designed and mandatory to telecommuting. There is no COVID-19 defense to corruption, and hindsight affords few excuses. 
the best way to protect your employer, your shareholders, and yourselves from future compliance risk is to do everything that you can, including by following the above steps to ensure that compliance remains active, visible, and assertive during the quarantine, and that your organization is well positioned to successfully tackle the post-quarantine wave of business activity. So, Jay, next up, we had an article in Corporate Compliance Insights by Charles Middleton, and he asked the question why we should stop blackballing whistleblowers. And this is something that I think um, is relatively well known, yet still occurs. And it often happens that a person's career is over when he or she blows the whistle. Middleton posits that if increasing compliance and minimizing fraud is the goal, and blackballing whistleblowers is counterproductive. Um, Jay, we've both been in corporate America, and although attitudes have changed somewhat since we were in our corporate heyday, uh, I can certainly remember anyone who was a whistleblower um, was blackballed uh, within the organization. It may have been uh, termination, as direct as that, or it may have been more subtle, something along the lines of, you know, he or she, they're, they're just not a team player. They're just really not one of us, and uh, they don't get it. And uh, that sort of attitude, I think, has been very harmful to corporate America, and Dodd-Frank drove that point home because if someone wanted to do the right thing and wanted to report and wanted to raise their hand and they got nowhere, then they had to go to the SEC or they had the opportunity to go to the SEC. Now you have to go to the SEC after the digital realty trust case, if you want uh, job protection or job security uh, after you whistleblow. So it's really in corporations' interest not to blackball whistleblowers. But I, I'm, I'm disappointed, but I think Charles Middleton is correct that that's an attitude that still has to change. And indeed, we saw um, the chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, attempt to cut back on the SEC's payment of whistleblower awards. Uh, the only reason he could have done that is because somebody pushed him to do it. And for the life of myself, I can't think of uh, any compliance officer who would want to do that. So it had to be other corporate officers uh, or corporations themselves pushing this. And it's completely antithetical to a compliance culture or a culture, a speak up culture and a speak up a culture of compliance, but it's also antithetical to a corporation's best interest. So, uh, Charles really drives this point home, and I think, or I hope that uh, we can actually get this get this changed. Um, Dr. Kyle Welch, who uh, reviewed data from Navex Global on their hotlines, really demonstrated companies with a robust reporting system have a material difference less in um, payouts for legal fines and penalties and legal costs. Uh, if they do have that robust, not only whistleblowing hotline, but also entire culture of reporting. So um, companies really need to uh, pay attention to this, Jay. Uh, for the folks out in the audience, uh, do you know what an MLAT is and are they abused? Uh, we're turning to the Wall Street Journal Risk Compliance Journal from Dave Michaels and my friend Aruna Viswanatha. And there is a dispute over Justice Department's use of overseas evidence as overseas evidence requests grow. A former prosecutor goes public with his allegation that such requests are abused. A dispute has erupted over whether the Justice Department has misused some foreign evidence requests 
escalated this week as prosecutors put forth an aggressive interpretation of their authority and a former public prosecutor went public with additional allegations of unethical conduct. The fight is playing out with two criminal cases against traders accused of manipulating prices for precious metals futures. The traders who formerly worked at Deutsche Bank and Bank of America's Merrill Lynch arm have argued that their individual that their indictments could have been tainted if prosecutors abused the process for seeking overseas evidence. Responses to mutual legal assistance treaties, or MLATs as they're commonly known, sometimes take months or years. So prosecutors can ask a federal judge under seal to suspend a statute of limitations for up to three years on a crime that they are investigating while they seek foreign evidence. The defendants have offered no authority that even a nakedly pretextual MLOT constitutes misconduct, let alone a proper basis to dismiss an indictment. Justice Department prosecutors wrote this week in a filing made in a Chicago federal court. The fight over MLOT surfaced last month when the Wall Street Journal reported an ex-prosecutor's claims that his colleagues abused the process to extend the statute of limitations in one of the manipulation cases. Ankush Kadori wrote in a memo to the Justice Department's Inspector General that it appeared his colleagues were in danger of running out of time to file their case and didn't need the information. Both fraud cases involved an MLOT request sent to the UK officials in December of 2016. The four traders who were charged in January 2018, almost a decade after some of their alleged misconduct occurred. In both instances, prosecutors later obtained new indictments under different fraud charges that allowed them to go after the conduct under a 10-year statute of limitations. The Justice Department says that there is one reason the dispute over the MLOTs is immaterial to the cases. None of these cases cited by the government supports the claim that government officials are free to mislead courts in this way, Mr. Kadori wrote. No court has ever adopted, and the law of fraud does not exempt representatives from its from from the government. So uh, this is uh, an interesting situation that I guess prosecutors run in, into all the time with uh, expecting foreign uh, foreign support. Tom, what, do you, what are your thoughts? Is really something outside my experience, but MLATs are a mandatory uh, requirement uh, on a government-to-government request, uh, particularly in Europe where uh, because of GDPR, you can't get this through what you and I would call normal discovery, uh, nor even a corporation accessing its own records from Europe and shipping it back to the United States. So there, in many ways, there's no good answer here because you have to go through the formal process, and I would prefer that prosecutors go through the formal process, uh, recognizing that uh, it may take time. It's, and it's not simply the U.S. prosecutors who are delaying this uh, at all because it's the foreign governments that uh, may or may not respond or certainly going to take their time to respond. And there may be blocking statutes or other international treaties which uh, come into play. Uh, it's just a difficult situation sort of all the way around, but one where you have uh, international bribery and corruption, which is what the FCPA outlaws, that's what uh, you're going to have. So, Jay, uh, our good friend Mike Volkoff has a three-part blog post series this week on the five key elements of a antitrust compliance program. Mike actually worked in the division, uh, as the insiders call it, but the antitrust division of uh, the Department of Justice. So he took a deep dive into that. Um, 
in uh, part one, he took a look at risk assessment. And here he uh, said that an antitrust risk assessment should focus on five parts, market concentration, products, and homogeny, uh, geographic markets, sales and tender process, trade association meetings and industry gatherings, and joint ventures. In part two, he took a look at uh, ethical culture, and he said that uh, a company's ethical culture has to include fair and robust competition. Of course, every company is committed to competing, but the point is the competition has to be done fairly and without illegal tactics. And in part three, he talks about training, speak up, and reporting systems, which kind of ties into the article we talked about with Charles Middleton. So, um, you know, Mike has real subject matter expertise in antitrust, antitrust law, and antitrust compliance. So this is a great series. And the the thing that intrigues me, Jay, is the intersection between antitrust compliance programs and anti-corruption compliance programs and how and why the anti-corruption compliance practitioner needs to pay attention to the antitrust compliance pronouncements from the DOJ antitrust division to see what could be incorporated into an ABC compliance program. Good stuff. Uh, Next, we have uh, something from the Board and Fraud blog from our friend Jonathan Marks that we spoke about earlier in the podcast. Uh, Jonathan says that thousands of companies are experiencing supply chain delays, workplace absences, lower productivity, travel cutbacks, and reduced trade and investment. Jonathan feels this should be a wake-up call for every board and their senior leadership. He talked about managing risk, that companies must stress test their level of preparedness in an effort to ensure continuity of business operations and work to mitigate any potential impact, prepare for possible further disruption, and from this and other possible crises. His uh, checklist of things to look at is, first of all, maintain continuous communications with your stakeholders. Test your crisis management and business continuity plans. Access your supply chain. Prepare for a changed economy and stakeholder, stakeholder exceptions. We should expect that the coronavirus crisis will change business and society in many ways. The impact of the virus may increase online shopping, online education, and individual behaviors. In terms of the board and fraud, Benjamin Franklin once pointed out, by failing to prepare, you're preparing to fail. A crisis situation can and often does increase the pressure on senior management and, of course, salespeople to meet their sales targets. Companies and their boards need to recalibrate, in most cases, increase their oversight today and subsequent to the crisis. He offers a couple checklists from the business continuity perspective to look at your operations, to look at your personnel, and to look at finance and legal. And finally, in closing thoughts, throughout the process, Always remember to distinguish between what's important versus what's urgent. Understand that managing a virtual team might be new for some, and stress levels, yes, might be high. So pick up the phone and talk to your teammates. As always, his uh, Board and Fard uh, website is a form of a lot of great ideas and uh, checklists of things for you to follow. So we will connect to it in the show notes. And Tom, uh, what is happening at the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance? Jay, it was a very interesting article entitled, Is Management Entrenchment Always Bad and Corporate Responsibility Always Good? The article was uh, very quantitative 
and it really broke down in a little bit different way than I had anticipated. It, it took each of those topics really separately, and it really argued for a more nuanced view. So typically you would say entrenched management is not good. Uh, you would have people sitting around for years just collecting a check. But what the authors believe is that by having an entrenched management, uh, they are less likely to follow the whims and vicissitudes of the market and take a more long-term view. And I certainly thought uh, that was interesting. In terms of uh, the CSR component, social uh, corporate responsibility component, there they considered uh, that um, companies who uh, talk about CSR, uh, they don't believe really um, that that's a true market differentiator, but that companies, Companies with an institutional system of management entrenchment and CSR together are more efficient and, at the end of the day, more profitable. I won't begin to walk you through or our audience through the quantitative analysis, but I found it a very different way to look at this and di- certainly different than uh, I had done in the past. And so that's why I wanted to uh, bring this article up for our consideration in this uh, podcast. Jay, we didn't say at the top of the hour, but of course, the biggest news in pro football uh, was the golden one. Tom Brady has left um, Boston and the New England Patriots and is going for the sunny shores of Tampa Bay. And so I wanted to ask you if if you could maybe give us some of your top remembrances, reflections, or highlights of 20 years of the golden one in New England, whether that be six Super Bowls, rings, whether that be eight Super Bowl appearances, whether it be a tuck game, whether that be leadership, whether that be great hair, what are your <laughs> reflections on the golden one? Well, I, I had a feeling you were going to ask me something like this. So um, I think we'll go back to the first Super Bowl that Brady won. And I remember, uh, I think it was Al Michaels and no, was it Pat Summerall and John Madden or was it Al Michaels and John Madden? But uh, Pat Summerall. Uh, Pat Summerall. Okay, he was awesome. Uh, so Madden says that you know the Patriots might as well just run the clock out and go into overtime, and instead uh, Brady marches them down the field, and Mr. Adam Vinatieri, who did not have uh, any snowplows to contend with, was kicking uh, on artificial turf, and he was able to knock that uh, ball through and. Uh, Real, realistically start off 20 years of uh, just inspired play by the Patriots, uh, watching Brady have incredible comebacks against Seattle, against Atlanta coming back from 28-3. to three. But I think I just always will remember Brady standing on that riser uh, in, I believe it was the New Orleans Superdome, and all the confetti's coming down, and he just looks so happy and you can just want to celebrate his success. And now I try to take that vision of Brady from 20 years ago and look at him now and say, uh, he has earned the right to do whatever he wants. And, um, I think the announcement in light of everything else that's happening in the world is, uh, somewhat of a respite for us to look at, uh, to look at sports and to think about, you know, something that hopefully will return when we have a return to normalcy. But um, I don't have any uh, issues with Brady. If he wants to play, he wants to play. And at the same time, 
Uh, Belichick runs that team, and he probably would have liked to have cut bait with Brady, Brady a couple of years ago. But, um, you know, everybody did what they did, and uh, hopefully they will all come together in Canton when his bust is unveiled. And it looks like his relationship with Kraft is solid. Uh, I'm happy he is not in uh, the AFC East. I do not believe we see Tampa Bay this year. But uh, I told Millie and Michaela, and now we have two teams to watch on Sunday, uh, the Patriots and the Bucks. So what do you think about the GOAT from um, a, a big blue Michigan perspective? Yes, we are fellow Wolverine grads, and we'll have uh... – you know, we'll have that in Paris forever. So um, I'm, uh, I was terrified he was going to go to San Diego. And you and I have talked about this because of what happened to Johnny Unitas. I don't want to see him like Johnny Unitas or Y Tittle broken on the field because he's a 42-year-old man trying to play a 22-year-old's game. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I was very impressed with the formal farewell given by Belichick. Because he didn't talk about his goatness. He didn't talk about his greatness in those six Super Bowls. He talked about what Tom Brady did for the New England Patriots. And in reading that, Jay, it really struck me that uh, Belichick wouldn't be a coach with six Super Bowl rings as a head coach without Tom Brady. And Tom Brady wouldn't have be the Tom Brady you and I know today without Belichick's system. And I think it's fair to say you can throw in Robert Kraft as a part of that. Each each one of those men had a part in creating the greatest team uh, teams, because you can't even call them one team of all time. And it's the most sustained run of greatness, certainly in pro football. The um, Belichick talked about Brady in the locker room, Brady as a team leader. Uh, Brady as as not only being vocal leader, but actually leading by example. He was the first one in the weight room, and he was the last one to leave. He was the first one in the film room, and he was the last one to leave. And I think, I mean, I wish they would have paid him to stay there, and I wish they would have paid him for that, because I think that is one of the more um, lesser-known things about Brady and why he achieved the greatness. But that was it within Belichick's system, and Belichick demanded that. And you could have had another quarterback with a more talent, perhaps, uh, and Blue, uh, Blue Dredsoe, uh, uh, Drew Bledsoe, perhaps, had a stronger arm than Brady. I know he did because I've seen him throw 70 yards. Nevertheless, those intangibles, you couldn't have had the sustained 20-year run of greatness without all three of those guys. And uh, I'm sorry it ended. It had to end at some point. Father Time wins all games. Um, and I certainly don't begrudge Brady for, for wanting to cash in, but it was the greatest sustained run of football greatness, uh, that I've ever seen. And probably you and I will ever see in our lifetimes. Um, never been a big Tampa Bay fan, but, uh, he's got some stellar wideouts now. And if he just pitches it to him, let him run. Um, Mike Evans is from Texas A&M and he was, uh, Johnny football's favorite receiver, so I've seen him play. I know he can play. And uh, I wish him both all the luck, both Belichick and Brady. Well, it should be certainly interesting to see what happens. We'll have to see uh, if we get any football games back in the fall. Uh, but that's putting things way ahead. 
what's in the present is that on the Compliance Podcast Network, you've started another month of 31 days to a more effective compliance program. What did you speak about this week, Tom? So, Jay, we're still, uh, first of all, let's note that this month's series is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. So thank you, Affiliated Monitors. Namaste or pound your heart, whatever you're supposed to do, uh, as opposed to fist bumping. Um, this month's topic has been innovation and compliance. So Monday we looked at the digital twin and the P&L of one, something our good friend Vince Walden has written about as well. Tuesday was super forecasting, uh, Philip Tetlock. Three, blockchain for compliance. That's something every compliance practitioner needs to check out. Design thinking is a way to improve your compliance program. I don't think that's used enough in compliance, but uh, I've taken I have a, a certification in design thinking and something that every compliance practitioner needs to consider. And then finally, AI as a competitive advantage for compliance. So 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program has its own iTunes channel. If you want to binge out and listen to these, once again, thank you to this month's sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, who can be reached at tfox, tfoxlaw.com, myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and I can be reached at the initial Jay Rosen at Affiliated Monitors. would like to thank you for turning, tuning in and listening to us for This Week in FCPA, episode 197 for the week ending March 20th, 2020, the Compliance Doesn't Sleep edition. Uh, We hope that you and your families are all safe and our thoughts are with you in this time of virus. And we will talk to you again next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA. Jay Rosen can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll check out the articles in the show notes. We link to them all. Once again, Compliance Week has their paywall down for all coronavirus articles. So take this opportunity to check out Compliance Week if you're not a subscriber. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's compliance and ethics stories which caught our eye. Thanks again and stay safe out there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.